Welcome to The Daily Bite. I'm your host, Pastor Steve Andrews. Our study of the book of Matthew continues with chapter 9. And getting into a boat, he crossed over and came to his own city. And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, This man is blaspheming. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, Rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and went home. When the crowds saw it, they were afraid and they glorified God who had given such authority to men. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, Follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to the disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Then the disciples of John came to him, saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment, and a worse tear is made. Neither is new wine put into old wine skins. If it is, the skins burst, and the wine is spilled, and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wine skins, and so both are preserved. While he was saying these things to them, behold, a ruler came in and knelt before him, saying, My daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her, and she will live. And Jesus rose and followed him with his disciples, and behold, a woman who had suffered from a discharge of blood for twelve years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. For she said to herself, If I only touch his garment, I will be made well. Jesus turned. And seeing her, he said, Take heart, daughter, your faith has made you well. And instantly the woman was made well. And when Jesus came to the ruler's house and saw the flute players and the crowd making a commotion, he said, Go away, for the girl is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But when the crowd had been put outside, he went in and took her by the hand, and the girl arose. The report of this went through all that district. And as Jesus passed on from there, two blind men followed him, crying aloud, Have mercy on us, son of David. When he entered the house, the blind men came to him. And Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? And they said to him, Yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes, saying, According to your faith be it done to you. And their eyes were opened, and Jesus sternly warned them, See that no one knows about it. But they went away and spread his fame through all that district. As they were going away, behold, a demon-oppressed man, 
who was mute, was brought to him. And when the demon had been cast out, the mute man spoke. And the crowds marveled, saying, Never was anything like this seen in Israel. But the Pharisees said, He cast out demons by the prince of demons. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. This is the word of the Lord. So we saw several miracles from Jesus yesterday. We're going to see a few more of them again today, including raising the dead. That's quite the thing, without a doubt. So Jesus has gone from Capernaum to the Gadarenes on the southeast side, crossing over the Sea of Galilee, and now he, he doubles back. He crosses over again, and he returns. Most likely here, this is a reference, his own city, to Capernaum the place where he was living and staying at the time, rather than Nazareth, which is 20 miles west of the Sea of Galilee, whereas Capernaum's right there on it. And so thinking of this as Capernaum's probably the best way to go about it. And they bring him a paralytic there. And this time, instead of based on the paralytic's faith, the one that he heals, it's based on the faith of the ones around him. So that says something about being a family and a church community together. There's value to this, that we are in this, we are one in Christ. Well, so he heals him. But not yet. Not in the way that we're used to seeing already in the gospel. He doesn't heal him physically. He heals him from his sin. He forgives him. Which is both a physical and soul, right? Body and soul impact. At that point, the scribes accused Jesus of blasphemy. That is, to speak against, to revile God himself, to blaspheme. They believe this to be blasphemy because they believe only God can forgive sins. And that, there's something to be said about that, but what they're missing then is that Jesus is God. So Jesus challenges them. Which is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven or rise and walk? Ask your children that question. Let them respond to that one and see what they think. Which of those two statements, A or B, is easier to say? The answer is your sins are forgiven. And the reason why that's easier to say is you can't prove it. If I look at the paralytic, like I go to a hospital and find somebody that's ill, and I say your sins are forgiven, well, there's no visible proof of that. But if I tell them that their illness, or paralysis in this case, is gone, there is immediate visible proof of that. So the easy one to get away with and fake is to say your sins are forgiven. But then Jesus, in order that the people can know that he not only, well, not only can heal, but that he can forgive sins, he goes ahead and he does the other one too. He does the hard one. Rise. Pick up your bed and go home. And the guy does. Jesus shows he has authority to forgive sins on this earth by showing he has the ability to heal. Again, see how he connects these two things together. Forgiveness is healing, the greatest kind. But Jesus uses his ability to heal 
earthly sickness as a display of his ability to forgive. No man can do what he just did. You were right. God forgives. Jesus is God. The people glorified God, and they were afraid. Verse 9, Jesus goes on from there. He meets Matthew sitting at the tax booth. Matthew is a tax collector, also known as Levi, and he calls Matthew, and Matthew follows. Just as immediately and abruptly as the call of Andrew and Simon, the call of James and John, back in chapter 4, that they're called and they go. They leave everything behind to follow Jesus. Jesus reclines at table that is to eat. They ate lying down in that culture. Think of lying on your side and using one of your arms to prop up your head, so your elbows on the ground and your hands on your head. And then the other arm is free to reach into the table to your plate to grab food. So he's reclining at table. They're eating together in the house. Luke chapter 5 would indicate this is Matthew's house. Matthew leaves that out of his own account. And present with him are tax collectors and sinners, and the Pharisees are upset that Jesus would eat with such people. Why is he eating with these evil people and not with the righteous ones like the Pharisees? He should be avoiding these people. To which Jesus responds, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Three quick statements here. We can think in our own medical community today, the conversation of the physician. Most people go to the doctor if they're sick, and if they're not sick, they seek to avoid the doctor. That's pretty much it here. These people recognize that they're sick. They need healing, and that's why Jesus has come, is to heal them. Again, forgiveness of sins. Yes, he's come to sinners. He's going to forgive their sin. They view tax collectors in the same group. So this isn't, by the way, any normal sin. They don't group label people sinners unless there's something there. So prostitutes, for example, might fit this kind of a category. But each of these men... Even the Pharisees are sinners as we would look at it. So they're looking at this as a group who have done something despicable, whatever that might be. And tax collecting is despicable. They believe that you're robbing God's people and giving it to Rome, giving it to the enemy. You're working for the enemy. So that's why they get lumped together. The I skipped ahead of verse 13 a little bit. For I came not to call the righteous but sinners... There is no one righteous, no, not one, as Paul says in the book of Romans. But even sans that, Jesus has come not to those who think they don't need him. The Pharisees think they don't need saving. They're on a path of trying to save themselves, which won't work. But these others, they're hearing God's call. They're responding in faith. Now, truly, Jesus came for the Pharisees as well. His forgiveness on the cross is for every sin of every person ever committed. But again, they reject it. In the middle of that, though, was the quotation of Hosea chapter 6, verse 6, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Essentially there, God would rather have 
faithfulness than our offerings. He would rather us not sin against him in the first place, but instead be faithful and love him. That makes sense. That first word, which Jesus says is mercy here, is quite flexible um, and not really well-defined in English. Steadfast love is the favorite word in ESV for it. Covenant faithfulness is probably my favorite translation of it. God desires our faithfulness, our love, and not for us to then have to sacrifice. Here, Jesus is now turning this phrase to even apply to us. He would, God would prefer for us to be merciful to each other and not require sacrifice of each other. Forgive these men, kind of the point he's making. At this point, still in the same house, John's disciples, John the Baptist, they come to Jesus asking about fasting. We fast, Pharisees fast. Why don't your disciples fast? Why aren't they following the same law as the rest of us? And Jesus uses the picture of a wedding. That at a wedding, you don't fast. If the bridegroom is there, you're feasting, you're celebrating. Jesus is the bridegroom. He is here, so we celebrate. When he leaves, there will be plenty of time to fast, which there has been 2,000 years, and we fast still in the Christian church today, although sporadically probably in 21st century America. Lent might be the, the main season known for fasting, but there are Christians throughout the world who fast on a regular basis. It's a part of their routine, whether it's weekly or whatever it might be. Jesus then gives some illustrations that may or may not make sense easily to the reader. You don't take an old garment that you've worn for a while that's torn and needs to be repaired. You don't take a new garment, a new piece of cloth, and use that to make the repair. Because when you wash it, that new piece of garment shrinks. And as it shrinks, it, it pulls at the old garment and tears it more. It would have been better to have not used that patch at all. The same with the wineskins. An old wineskin... It's already been through the process. It handled the fermenting of a wine before, new wine and a new wineskin. Now that wineskin's old, it, it's not going to hold up again. If you put new wine in it to ferment, it's going to break it. So you put new wine in a new wineskin so you don't lose it. The picture Jesus is making here is that they're trying to take something new, Jesus, and just try to like gloss him over their lives, add him to what they already know, believe, and do. In this part, I want to read you a quote from Dr. Gibbs's commentary on the book of Matthew from the Concordia Commentary Series, page 479, because he says this really well. They are in danger of trying to take something new, Jesus himself, and simply adding him or stitching him onto their old way of life in Judaism. No one does such a thing with a garment, and for good reason. The only possible result is that the old garment will be ruined. Jesus cannot be a patch, something small and secondary that merely repairs the larger structure that was already in place. That was what these disciples of John and the Pharisees wished to make of Jesus. But Jesus is and must be primary, first, central. He has not come to fix a small breach in the existing religion, nor just to supplement it. Rather, he has come to fulfill the entirety of the Old Testament scriptures and inaugurate the promised new covenant in himself. Any other approach to him results in something even worse than before. 
every other religion in the world is me-centric, focused on what must I do to save myself. So is Judaism. I must keep the law in order to be saved. And they're trying to take Jesus and put him on top of that. This is what the epistles in the New Testament are going to rail against for so long. As everywhere Paul went teaching the gospel and people believed, then the Judaizers came behind him and taught them that if they really wanted to be God's people and saved, then they had to be circumcised, they had to keep the law, and so forth. And you even get the Jerusalem Council in the book of Acts talking about this very thing. We can't do this. We're not saved by works. We're saved by grace. So it's not the Old Testament that's being rejected. As Jesus said, that's not going to pass away. What's being rejected is their old understanding or the way they were teaching it, the way they viewed the law and the prophets through, for example, the Pharisees and how they tried to apply it. We then get a sandwich technique miracle here where Jesus is going to be introduced to a man whose daughter died. And then we've got the woman of of 12 years bleeding and then we're back to the account of the, the daughter who died. Now this ruler, so a ruler of a synagogue, comes to Jesus seeking something, right? What? She will live. His daughter's dead. He comes to Jesus, believing Jesus can raise her from the dead. Talk about faith. We saw some great faith in chapter 8 as well. This man believes Jesus can raise her from the dead. We know this from other gospel accounts to be Jairus. Um, That's just a detail Matthew doesn't bother to include. And as he's going to the house of this ruler, a woman touches him. She's been bleeding for 12 years, pretty much nonstop. And she believes, if I only touch his garment, I will be made well. And what happens? She's made well. Jesus heals her. And as he's told others, take heart, daughter, your faith has made you well. He connects the healing to the faith. There's a similarity again for our faith. That is, we believe that forgiveness, that life, that salvation, the promises of God are made ours. Faith receives these things. Faith isn't in itself the, the doer. It's not our faith that earns salvation. Jesus earned it, just as Jesus has the power to heal in these texts here. But it's through faith that we receive those gifts. It's through her faith that she received healing. So now they make it to the house, and there is basically a show happening. They would have professional mourners at the time who would come and and grieve with a family. And they've even got flute players here. There's quite a commotion over the death of this young girl. You can picture the scene, right? Perhaps screaming, not just sadness, not quiet sadness. There's a lot of noise and chaos And as Jesus sends them all away, saying she's not dead but sleeping, they laugh at him. I think the word at helps here. Uh, Maybe translating it ridiculed him might work or mocked him. It's not a happy laughter, right? They are opposed to him. They're making fun of him for saying something they think is foolish. She's dead. What do you mean she's just asleep? But as they leave, Jesus touches her, takes her by the hand, and she arises. She lives. Jesus raises the dead. What's great about this is not just that miracle that day, but again, it's a witness to us of what Jesus can do. He has promised to raise us from the dead. 
as he has raised her, he will also one day raise us, and it'll be even better because it's a resurrection that doesn't lead to death. She died again. Lazarus dies again. But on the last day when she's raised and Lazarus is raised and you and I are raised, uh, we live forever. Two blind men approach him. They call him son of David, connecting back to the prophecy of a savior who would come from the house of King David, a Messiah who would sit on the throne of Jerusalem forever. Second Samuel 7. Quite a profound statement of faith. And they believe Jesus can heal them, and so, according to your faith, be it done to you. Again, the connection of faith and healing. He warns them not to tell anyone. You can have that conversation again. We had it a day or two ago in a family. Uh, why? Why not tell people? Again, the idea that Jesus is here to preach and teach, to show people the gospel through his preaching, not through his miracles. And the more that the miracles are known, the more people come to him seeking more miracles rather than the gospel. So if, if they keep silent... His task of preaching and teaching are easier to do. But they go about and they spread fame throughout the district. So people are going to gather to him more and more. The demon-possessed man, the demon-causing muteness. In the next paragraph, Jesus casts out the demon so the mute man can speak again. And the people, re- I mean, they rejoice. Never was anything like this seen in Israel. But as I mentioned at the end of yesterday's text, not every miracle leads to belief. That's not always the response. And here the Pharisees can see the same miracle, and instead of believing, they believe Jesus does these things because he's in league with the demons. It is by the prince of demons, it's by the devil, that he does such works. Miracles do not bring faith. Always. Then, Jesus continues, we get another summary statement like we had in chapter 4, of his going to the various cities and villages, preaching, teaching, giving them the gospel, healing, and so forth, having compassion on the people, he calls them like sheep without a shepherd. They have no leader. They're left wandering and and broken in this world. He's come to be the good shepherd. It's a a John picture from John chapter 10. But he's also going to call his disciples to be shepherds too. We call our pastors today sometimes under-shepherds of the good shepherd. So he instructs them to pray. The harvest is plentiful, that is, there's a lot to be gathered, right? A lot of people in this world to preach the gospel to and bring them into the kingdom, bring them into the barn, as John has referenced. But the laborers are few. There aren't a lot of people spreading the gospel, doing the good work. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Lord, raise up those who will preach the gospel so that others may hear it and know. And I would encourage you in a family devotion to end your devotion by praying the prayer Jesus just invited you to pray. Pray that God would indeed send out new workers into his harvest. Those don't just have to be pastors. We are all called as God's people, to share the good news with others. So pray for your pastor of your church. Pray for pastors in general. We're short on pastors at this point in history. We could use more of them. But also pray for your family, that you would be so bold as to proclaim Christ in your everyday life to the neighbors he has placed around you. (laughs) 